I want to say a special thank you to Carol for singing that song, for Corb, uh, to Corb for choosing it. I had requested a song, kind of half-jokingly, to use, and uh, Corb said, that's a bridge too far. But this song that I've never heard before, my Jesus, have any of you heard that song before? Okay, a couple of you have. Where did you hear it? Where have I been? That was an excellent song, and... uh, perfect words for what we're going to be talking about this morning. I don't know if I have the right slides up here. Oh, there we go. Can you bring me back to... Is that okay? Now I'm getting ahead of myself. Ruined all of that suspense. You got to see all the behind the scenes stuff. Let me ask you a series of questions. Just pretend you didn't see any of that, okay? (laughs) Let me ask you some questions this morning. And maybe these are questions that you have asked yourself. Am I really forgiven? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Has that thought ever come in your mind? You think back to your past Maybe your ancient past, maybe your near past, something that you've done, you've said, you've thought, that's so terrible. Can God really forgive that? Let me ask you, does that thought come from God or from Satan? Hmm? Satan, that's right. God doesn't plant that thought in our minds. That thought is from the enemy. What about this question? Does God love me? Think about, once again, all that you've done, all that you've said, all that you've thought. Does God love me? And you could read this sentence multiple different ways. Does God love me? Once again, where does that thought come from? Does that come from God or does it come from Satan? You're not very convincing. (laughs) It comes from the enemy, does it not? God is not putting those thoughts into our mind. One more question. Actually, a statement. These are the first two that I chose are questions and the next one is, is a statement that some people think. I'm worthless. Once again, is that thought implanted in our minds from God or from Satan? There you go. Listen, the strategy of Satan hasn't changed since the beginning of time in Genesis chapter 3. If you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 this morning, that's where we're going to start And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say? Notice what he does. He, He starts with a question. He's planting a seed of doubt in Eve's mind. Did God actually say? 
you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now, did God say that? No, he did not say that. He did not say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. What he did say was, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is one tree in the garden that they were forbidden to eat from, but, but this, is Eve's this is Satan's strategy. And it would be good for all of us this morning and for the rest of our lives to understand what Satan's strategy is so that we can see it when he uses it on us. He's planting a seed of doubt. Now, unfortunately, for Adam and Eve, instead of recognizing this as a strategy, Eve bites. In a way, she bites before she bites, if you get what I'm saying. She said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So far, so good. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now Satan knows he, he has her. She is adding to God's word. God never said don't touch it. That was something that possibly Adam and Eve made for themselves or maybe Eve thought it up on the spot just to have a stronger retort against the enemy. And so what does Satan do? He moves from the deceptive question, planting the seed of doubt, to the outright lie. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And we know what happened after that. Eve ate, she gave to her husband Adam, he ate. And in Adam, we have been sinners ever since. We have been disobeying God. Fast forward several thousand years and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We come to another temptation, another time that Satan enters the scene. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1, it begins this way, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. What is Satan doing here? If you are. He asked Eve a question to plant a seed of doubt in her mind. Now he's trying to do the same with Jesus. He's not using a question, but he's using a conditional statement. If you are the son of God. Let's fast forward to the next one. Verse six. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Why do you think these two times, these first two temptations, that Eve, 
or that Satan tried to plant the seed of doubt in Jesus' mind with that phrase, if you are the Son of God? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 3, the end of Matthew chapter 3, which comes right before chapter 4, and this is Jesus' baptism. And he's baptized by John there in the Jordan River. And then verse 17, it says this, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Forty days later, after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, which Barry Cooper in Life Explored talks about the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve experienced their temptation. He, he, he described it this way. A garden, a paradise of yes. One tree of no. And here Jesus, he's not in paradise. He's not having every uh, need satisfied by his surroundings. Instead, he finds himself in a wilderness. 40 days having fasted. I don't know about you. I fasted before. Three or four days is my max. And whatever commitment I've made to fasting, by day two, I'm looking for loopholes. <laughs> I'm trying to get out of this thing. Whatever I can do. By day three, I'm grumpy, and my wife is saying, hey, I'll help you with those loopholes. We got to get some food in you. Jesus has gone 40 days fasting, and this is when Satan comes to him and tempts him to make the, the, lo, the stones into bread. And by the way, what would have been wrong with making those stones into bread? Jesus could do that. We know that twice he took loaves and fishes and fed multi multitudes of people. There's nothing wrong with Jesus making stones into bread, except it says here in verse 1 of chapter 4 that Jesus was led by the Spirit. It would have been disobedient for Jesus to eat until God told him it was time to eat. The same problem that Adam and Eve had in the garden, disobedience. It's the same temptation that Satan brings to Jesus, disobedience. One more temptation. Now he comes with the outright lie. All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Now Satan comes along and says, these are all mine. I'll give them to you. He's telling that to the creator of those kingdoms. It's an outright lie. Satan's strategy has not changed. He comes to deceive, to get you to question, to get you to doubt. And then he moves into the outright lies about God and about you. We know from Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve failed the test. They gave in to the temptation. And so in Adam, that's where we are as well. 
Left to ourselves, we will fail every single time. But notice what Jesus did. Every single answer he gave to Satan began with these three words. Would you say them with me? It is written. Satan brought Jesus a distorted rendering of the scriptures. Jesus came back with an accurate rendering every single time. Friends, the strategy to defeat the deception and the lies of Satan has not changed either. The same strategy that Jesus used is a strategy that we need to use. It is written. This last, we, many of you know that we moved about a month ago. And so, whenever you move, it takes a while to sort through things. And, and kind of like the last frontier is this room in our basement that's supposed to be my office. So Friday, I went through, I started going through that room and I, I had old files. Files that go back to my college years. I'm holding one of them in my hand here. This is a class I took my sophomore year of college with a professor named Samuel Taloyan. He's now my father-in-law. At that time, I was dating his daughter. It was a freshman-level class. I'm taking my sophomore year because I was too scared to take it my freshman year. It's called personal evangelism. He taught this class for 26 years. And the reason I was scared to take this class is not because my future father-in-law was teaching it, but because in the class, he required us to memorize 105 verses. Here's the list. I got this file out yesterday and I started reading the references to my father-in-law and he started spitting out the, he said, Tim, after 26 years of grading these quizzes, I know these verses. <laughs> and he still knows them. And it's been... 26 years probably since he taught this class at Pillsbury Baptist Bible College. Why did he have us memorize these verses? I mean, walking around college, you could tell the people in his class because they had a stack of cards. They're standing in the line of the dining hall. They're going through their cards. I mean, you had to because these were cumulative. By the final exam, you were responsible. He could ask any, any, any reference or he could write out a verse and you'd have to give the reference. I got a B in the class, according to my notes. <laughs> I had an A at midterm, but it was that cumulative effect that did me in. I remember the night before cramming for this, this, this uh, final exam. What's the purpose of this? Because if you are going to fight the enemy, the spiritual enemy, you have to use God's word. And if you're going to use God's word, you have to know God's word. When the enemy comes and brings his attacks and you don't know what the word says, you're like a soldier going into battle without any equipment whatsoever. We have this, um, if you came in this way, you look at the wall outside the library, you'll see... Um, today a whole bunch of uh, papers that look like this on the wall. There's 12 of them. 
people from South who have written a book review of books that are in our library or, Lord willing, will soon be in our library. And then uh, there's going to be these, these uh, about 12 of these laying around the church at wherever seats are uh, that you can sit down and, and uh, you can leaf through this and, and read these book reviews. I, I love how Pastor Don began his. All these have the same question, so it's very easy to write a book review. You don't really have to be creative. Uh, he chose the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. The very first question that everyone asked to answer is, why did you choose to read this book? His answer, I was interested in the topic. I would hope so. <laughs> now, Keith, the book that he chose to review is called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, uh, the timeless novel about a bus ride from, from hell to heaven. And the third question that everyone answers in these book reviews is this, are there any secondary themes that you find interesting? This is what Keith wrote about this book. A seemingly ever-present theme in Lewis's writings is the idea that to be in Christ means to become truly human. Sin has marred the image of God in us. But as it is restored through faith and obedience, we become what we were truly meant to be and one day will be when we see him face to face. How are you going to be obedient if you don't know what the book says? Your life in Christ will, will remain that of an infant. If you don't get into the book, read it, might I dare say to challenge you, memorize it and use it. And so this morning I want to give you 10 truths about who you are in Christ with some accompanying scriptures that you can use in your battle against the enemy. And the first one is this. I am God's child. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, right out of the gate, this very first one is so important. It's foundational to all the rest. Because if this first one is not true of you, the rest of them will be lies. And you can't battle Satan's lies with your own lies. So you have to come to the very first one. You have to be in Christ, you have to be his child. You will lose in your battle against the enemy if you are trying to do it on your own. You must be in Christ. And so how do we get to be in Christ? We receive him. We believe in him. We are obedient to him. One of the things that's kind of become my mantra in, in the recent weeks as I've taught through Life Explored and some other Bible studies that I'm in is this. In order to be a follower of Jesus, you must be a follower of Jesus. Think about that. You can't say I'm a follower of Jesus and not, then not do what he says and not follow him. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to be in his family. My kids look like their parents in their physical appearance, in their physical appearance. 
We look like Christ when we act like Christ. And we act like Christ when we follow his word. So the, out of the starting gate, this very first one, I am God's child, is crucial. And we become God's child when we receive him, when we put our faith and trust in him and repent of our sins. Now, if that is true, then the rest, the other nine that I'm going to share with you this morning are true for you as well. How about this one? God is for you. Romans 8, 31 through 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? God is for you. Whenever you think, whenever you have that doubt planted in your mind, is God for me? These things that are happening in my my life, they're just out of the norm. Man, God must really have it in for me. No, friends, God is for you. We're going to see another one in just a few minutes here. I'll give a preview to it. God cannot love you any more than he loves you right now. He cannot love you any less than he loves you right now. If you are in Christ, any of the reasons why you're thinking that, why God wouldn't love you, maybe he's punishing you, maybe, you know, you've done something really bad, all that's been taken care of on the cross. He died for you. Every single reason why God would not be for you has been answered by Jesus Christ on the cross. And he, if he gave you his son in that way, will he not also give you everything that you need for a life of godliness? I have a purpose. God has created you for a purpose. Romans eight twenty eight says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to, what's that next word? His purpose. Your life has a purpose, but it's a purpose given to you by God. A lot of times we like to make that purpose about us. This is my purpose statement. And if you have a, you don't have to raise your hand, but you know, a purpose statement, a mission statement, something like that, that's good. As long as it's God's purpose for you. Why did God create you? He created you for a purpose. And so along with this, it's this idea that you have a destiny. Now, I have a friend who doesn't like this word. For good reason. It's because, once again, too many people think of it as their own destiny. They think of it from a human point of view. They think of it in a temporal sort of a way. Oh, my destiny, I, I have this great job, or I have this great family, or I got this new boat, or I got this new cabin, or, you know, it's my destiny. No, that's not what it's talking about here. What does Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 says? He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What is your destiny? Your destiny is to be God's son. That's what your destiny is. And then along with that, the next chapter, chapter 2 and verse 10, for we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you are God's son. Yeah, all of you females as well understand what this son concept means. You are God's son and you have a destiny. That is, God created you with a purpose and a plan. Specific work for you to do. And your work is different than my work. God has placed you in this world, in this place, with these specific types of abilities and, and, and likes and dislikes and all this kind of stuff, and they've been marred by sin, but in Christ he begins to redeem us, to sanctify us, and to teach us why he placed us here. You have a purpose and you have a destiny. Here's another one. I am Christ's ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. The ambassador is the highest ranking person from one country to another. So, for example, when I was in Japan, I lived in Japan for nine years. I lived in one of the remotest areas of Japan. I was not the highest ranking American citizen in Japan, by far. That person was the ambassador who lived in Tokyo. And the ambassador represented the interests of the United States government, specifically the President of the United States. And whatever the president's message was, that was the message of the ambassador. Friends, we are ambassador of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are the highest ranking individuals in this foreign country called the world. We represent him. We represent his interests. His message is our message. And here it is, it's very simple. Four words. We should be able to remember this. If you can't remember any of the other verses from this morning, you can remember these four words. Your message is this, be reconciled to God. Friends, the biggest problem in the world today is not any of the sins that you might list. Think of the top 10 list, the top 10 problems with the United States of America. We'd all come up with a, a list. Some of the things on that list would be similar, I'm sure. Think of all the things on that list. None of them are the biggest problem in the world today. The biggest problem in the world today is people are enemies of God. People are living in rebellion against God. And so the solution to all of these problems is to be reconciled with God. And as Christ's ambassadors, we have the wonderful privilege and responsibility to share this message with those that God has strategically placed in our lives. I am Christ's ambassador. Now, an ambassador works separately from the one that they represent. And so, not only are we Christ's ambassadors, but the very next chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, we are Christ's co-workers. Working together with him, then we appeal you appeal to you not to receive God's grace in vain. To have a coworker that you work alongside with, 
That's one of the things I appreciate most about ministering here at South Church is the coworkers that I get to work with. Andy's on the front row here. Here's Pat. Here's Doug. Throughout this building are, are coworkers. And all of you as well, you know, last, a week ago Saturday, a bunch of coworkers came to put together these Saturate 48917 packets. We are coworkers together. We are, and there's something about working together that when, when that's done in a good way, it builds harmony, builds unity, and it feels good. We, have, we can work off of each other's strength. We are Christ's co-workers. He is right there with us all the time. He hasn't sent us away on our own. And so it's like when the President of the United States would go to Japan and together with the ambassador meet with a prime minister to discuss whatever the important details were on the agenda. That's Christ with us. When we go and we share this message, be reconciled to God, he is right there with us, strengthening us, guiding us, directing us. And then there's one more, even more intimate description of those of us who are in Christ. I am Christ's friend. John chapter 15 and verse 15 says, I have called you friends for all that I've heard from the Father I have made known to you. It's one thing to be an ambassador. It's quite another thing to be a coworker but to be a friend. Think of your closest friend. And Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's called us his friends. I am Christ's ambassador. I am Christ's coworker. I am Christ's friend. And all of this cannot be taken away from me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22 says, I am established, anointed, and sealed. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has, and has also placed his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a, what's that last word? Guarantee. Hey, the, the ambassador of Japan that was there when I was there between 1995 and 2004 is no longer there. That ambassador has been replaced many times over, I'm sure. It's not a permanent position. But our position in Christ, in his family, is guaranteed. It cannot be taken away from you by anyone else, by the enemy himself, not even you can take yourself out of God's family. We are established, anointed, and sealed. And all of this is because I am forever free from condemnation. How can that be? I've done so many bad things. I continue to do bad things. Why is it that I can't overcome this besetting sin in my life? I call myself a child of God and I go back to it over and over and over again. How can that be? As I was reminded a couple times this last week from two different people independent of themselves, these truths about sin, the penalty for sin has been taken care of on the cross. The power of sin no longer needs to have victory in my life. But the presence of sin will not be taken away 
until eternity. Hey, this is a sign of a maturing Christian. I used to think that that, that uh, mature Christians could like somehow have a glow about them and just feel so good about themselves. They've been walking with the Lord so long. They have all this victory. But in reality, it's quite the opposite because the more mature you are in Christ, the more sinful you realize you really are. And for some people, that's really confusing. They're like, well, man, if I feel so sinful, how can I be in Christ? Hey, that's a sign that you are in Christ. You're feeling bad about your sin and you're repenting and you're going back to the source, to the gospel. That's why we need the gospel, not just for that initial point of conversion, but all the way through. You are free forever from condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And why is that? Because 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why are you free from condemnation? Because when God looks at you, he sees you robed in the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your faults. He doesn't see your deficiencies. He sees you perfected in Christ. And so we come to our last one. I cannot be separated from God's love. These are the verses I had Pastor Doug read for us this morning. Let's read them together. Would you do that with me? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are the, the truths and the the word of God that you need in your lives to battle against the deception and lies of the enemy. Let's review them this morning. Would you say them with me? I am God's child. God is for me. I have a purpose. I have a destiny. I am Christ's ambassador. I am Christ's coworker. I am Christ's friend. I am established, anointed, and sealed. I am free forever from condemnation. I cannot be separated from God's love. Some of you on your way in received this bookmark. If you didn't, on your way out, you can grab one uh, from an usher. I wanted to give you a tool that you could use. Put it in your Bible, 
Maybe when you have devotions, work on one of these a day. Maybe one a month. By this time next year, you'll have these memorized and, and ready to go. You'll be the better person for it. I got all these, and, and, and there's a whole bunch more of them from Freedom in Christ Ministries. If you're interested, they have a bookmark. They probably have 30 or 40 of, I, I just chose the 10 that I thought would be the best highlights for us. But this is the strategy that you're going to do, you're going to use the same strategy that Jesus used in fighting off the attacks of the enemy. You gotta use the word. And to use the word, you gotta know the word. To know the word, you gotta spend time in the word. You gotta memorize it so you can use it in your battle. This battle is life and death. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the opportunity this morning to share these truths from your word. I don't know who I'm speaking to this morning and, and, and I don't know what the specific challenges are for uh, people here today, but I do know we all face these challenges one way or the other. The circumstances and situations may be different, but the challenges are the same. And the attacks at their core attack the gospel and who we are in Christ. So Lord, I pray that this would be an encouragement to us who are believers, but I pray for those today who walked into this room not a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe they're watching online right now. They've never repented of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So out of the gate, that very first one was a challenge for them. Lord, I pray this morning your Holy Spirit would do his work to convict and draw. Convict of sin and draw them into repentance and faith and trust in you. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I encourage you, just take a few minutes right where you are. If you want, you can open your eyes, peek at the bookmark, look over these. Maybe choose one or two that you need in your life right now. Amen. We encourage you to take.